0: Hello, and welcome to Kenmore Square. You should be standing with the Ace Tickets Office right behind you, and to your right and across the street, you should see the entrance to the glass-domed Kenmore Square T-stop. That's where locals get off public transit to head to one of baseball's most famous landmarks, Fenway Park. Fenway is one of baseball's cathedrals. It's where legends like Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, and Jim Rice played. Fenway Park is one of the few urban stadiums left in the country. It sits smack dab in the middle of this bustling residential neighborhood, and the diehard fans wouldn't have it any other way. It might be the oldest stadium in Major League Baseball, and one of the smallest, but we have always loved it. Fenway's first game was played on April 20th, 1912. Beginnings are auspicious, and the Red Sox defeated our rivals, the New York Yankees, seven to six. But newspaper coverage that day was focused on the Titanic, And some fans might say we were sinking, too. See, the Red Sox didn't win a World Series for 86 years straight, from 1918 to 2004. This long drought was dubbed the Curse of the Bambino, because fans believed it began when the Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees. And Red Sox fans have come to identify with that long, hard struggle, almost as much as we identify with this ballpark. My earliest memories of Fenway Park are from the 1975 World Series. I was eight years old, and I went to all four home games because my dad had a friend with season tickets. I remember going nuts when Carlton Fisk hit the game-winning home run in game six. And how quiet the ballpark was after Yaz flew out and we lost game seven. As my family and I walked back to our car, we passed under an apartment window. I could hear some young guys partying up a storm. I screamed. Be quiet! Don't you know we lost the World Series?" I guess that's when I became a true fan, not only of the Red Sox, but of Fenway Park. But not everyone has embraced Fenway's legacy, or what it means to this neighborhood. In the late 1990s, the Red Sox owners, along with local politicians, did a full-court press to tear down the original ballpark and build a new one. But as you'll see, that didn't happen. So how did the community and Red Sox fans take on that group of owners and politicians and save Fenway Park? That's the story I'm going to tell you today, and it's a juicy one, filled with greed, nostalgia, and some good old-fashioned baseball. I'm Saul Wisnia, and I'm a lifelong Red Sox fan who literally wrote the book on this ballpark. Two of them, actually. Fenway Park, the Centennial, and Miracle at Fenway. I work just across the street from the park as the senior publications editor for Dana-Farber Cancer Institute which operates the Jimmy Fund, a nonprofit that helps kids and adults with cancer. The Jimmy Fund has been working with the Red Sox to raise money for cancer research and treatment since 1953, and most people can't think of the Jimmy Fund without thinking of this ball club. Let's start walking. Facing the main road with the grass and tree-lined median, turn left and walk towards the corner. We're headed to that red brick building that says Hotel Buckminster. By the late 1990s, Major League Baseball was in the middle of a mega stadium building boom, led by Baltimore's Camden Yards. Red Sox owners claimed that they were losing a lot of money because of Fenway's smaller capacity and rundown infrastructure. The owners blamed the club's financial disadvantage when it came to raising capital to sign top-level players as a reason that they couldn't compete with richer teams like the Yankees. When you get to the corner, stop there. All right. You should be on the corner of the sidewalk facing the Hotel Buckminster across the street. Turn to your right, and with your back to the Bank of America on the corner, look up above the buildings across that busy street. See the giant sicko sign? It's hard to miss. That sign is as iconic in Boston as Fenway Park itself. If you've ever watched a Red Sox game, you can't miss it, glowing white and orange over the top of the stadium's infamous left-field wall, the 37-foot-tall green monster. But much like Fenway, there was a moment when this sign was in danger of disappearing. The original sign was put up in 1965 and had 5,878 neon lights inside. But those lights haven't always burned bright. Between 1979 and 1983, the sign went dark because of an ongoing energy crisis. And the Venezuelan government, which owns Sico, threatened to take it down. But Public outcry prompted the Boston Landmarks Commission to defend it as a historic landmark, and they saved the sign. Over the last few years, the SICO sign, much like the ballpark, has undergone some serious renovations. The original neon lights were replaced by more than 1.7 miles of LED lights in 2005. It was a $1.5 million renovation that was officially turned on by then-Boston Mayor Tom Menino. Who just a few years earlier was one of the politicians pushing hardest for a new stadium. Okay, let's go take a look at this famous ballpark. With your back to the Sitco sign and the Bank of America to your left, start walking up Brookline Avenue. Okay, let's get back to Fenway in the late 90s. Former Red Sox CEO John Harrington used all the park's shortcomings to argue the need for a new stadium. Harrington said, it would be easier to straighten the Leaning Tower of Pisa than it would be to fix Fenway. As you pass the building to your left, take a look in that direction and you'll get a great first look at the back of our amazing ballpark. That's your first glimpse right here of Fenway Park. Carefully cross the small street ahead and continue forward. After some political wrangling by Mayor Tom Menino and others, a bill was passed to pave the way for a new ballpark. On May 15, 1999, Harrington announced plans for the new Fenway Park. It was gonna be built right next to the old one. It would seat more than 44,000 people and be fully modernized. Some sections of the existing ballpark were gonna be preserved, mainly the Green Monster, but most of the original park was gonna be demolished. All right, stop here in the bridge for a moment and look to your left. You should be getting your first up-close look at Fenway Park. Look across the street to your right. On the silver pole, just to the right of the fence lining the sidewalk, do you see that white metal sign with black lettering? This bridge to Fenway Park is named after Red Sox legend David Ortiz, who retired in 2016. His nickname was Big Poppy, and that's what people call this bridge, Big Poppy Bridge. Big Poppy's story is not uncommon for a ball player after some decent years with the Minnesota Twins, he was released by the team. But the Red Sox gave him another chance, and he hit it out of the ballpark, literally. Ortiz is, quite possibly, the greatest clutch hitter who has ever lived, and he was one of the key players on the team that broke the curse of the Bambino. If it wasn't for Big Papi's big hits, the Red Sox never could have won the World Series in 2004, and we might still be long-suffering fans in search of a World Series win. So for me and a lot of other diehard Boston fans, Big Poppy is a hero right up there with our founding fathers like Sam Adams and Paul Revere. Now if you look to your left, you should also see the Boston skyline. Look for one of the tallest skyscrapers. It says Prudential across the top. During big games, the Pru is often lit up to say, Go Sox! The next tallest building to the left of the Pru is the Hancock Tower. And behind that, which you can't quite see, is the old Hancock Tower. It has a weather beacon on top that has shared the forecast for more than a half century. Steady red, rain ahead. Flashing red, snow instead. But during the baseball season, flashing red means the Red Sox game is canceled. Alright, let's start walking in the same direction as before, over the bridge. Now, Harrington's plan was not only going to demo Fenway. He and the owners were also pushing the Boston City Council to approve eminent domain so they could take 15 more acres adjacent to the park to build on. Imagine what that would have done to this neighborhood. And all of this at a cost to the public of $545 million. Fenway Park and the neighborhood around it was going to be bulldozed, and the public was going to pay for it. The proposal was highly controversial, and fans and community members quickly formed a group called Save Fenway Park to protest it. As you get to the end of the bridge, continue past the Oliver sign on the left. This is the heart of the Fenway neighborhood, and these bars and restaurants cater to the fans on game day. But Fenway blends into this residential neighborhood so well that when pitcher Roger Clemens arrived in Boston for the first time in 1984 he was sure his taxi driver was lost. Until the driver directed Clemens to look up at the light towers and Clemens realized he was in the right place. Stop here at the corner of Brookline Avenue and Lansdowne Street and turn to your left. Just behind the black gate wrapping around the outdoor tables to your left, you'll see the entrance to the cask and Flagon. This bar opened in 1969, and now the owner's kids, Dana and Bruce Van Fleet, run it you'll notice a lot of family-run, multi-generational businesses around this ballpark. Places like this bar and the biggest sports souvenir store, and lots of the sausage vendors along Yawkey Way. But the bar is not only part of this nostalgic neighborhood, it also preserves the neighborhood's nostalgia. Inside, the walls are lined with iconic black-and-white sports photos taken by well-known Boston Herald photographer Dennis Brearley. That guy was a genius at capturing key moments in sports history. But I want to show you another photo in the cask. It depicts Fenway Park being built back in 1911. In a moment, you'll pause me and head inside, going through the main black doors on the corner. You can grab a drink at the bar, and after you've had your drink, press play, and I'll take you to the photo. If it's game day and too busy to get in, just take a look at the photo on your phone. Okay, pause me and head inside. Ready to find the photo? OK, with the doors you came in behind you, walk straight ahead, keeping the bar on your left. As you approach the booths in the center of the room, continue walking down the aisle to the left of the booths. The arched wall should be on your left. You should see two rows of photographs on the wall to your left. Stop in front of them. This is a series of photographs from the early 1900s, capturing the area around Fenway Park before it was built and during its construction. If you start on the left side, you'll see a photo of the area before construction began. Follow it right along the wall to see Fenway Park actually materialize before your eyes. If you need more time, press pause. When you're done, Meet me outside the door that you came in and press play. Was that a great watering hole or what? And it's just across the street from Fenway Park. Let's go get a closer look at the park. With the doors to the bar behind you, walk down the steps. Turn left and walk through the gap in the black railing to the sidewalk. Turn left down Lansdowne Street and start walking. As you walk, take a look at the ballpark. See that section of the wall that has two huge white steel light towers rising above it? That's it, the green monster, at least the brick side of it. If it's a game day, you should be able to make out people sitting on top of the wall. Some of the best seats in Fenway are up there, though that wasn't always the case. On the other side of the wall, the scoreboard takes up the lower half of the green monster and is still updated by hand throughout the game. There are 127 slots in the wall and a team of three scorekeepers move around two pound 13 by 16 inch plates to present the score. Now that's a real ballpark. Even before the potential demolition in the 1990s, Fenway had many renovations, including changes to the Green Monster. Following the 1926 fire that wiped out the wooden bleachers, the wall had to be reinforced with concrete and tin. After Tom Yawkey bought the Red Sox in 1933, he raised the wall to its current height. Then, in 1975, outfielder Fred Lynn ran into the wall during the World Series and was knocked unconscious. So the concrete and tin was replaced with more forgiving plastic. The good news is, the tin was auctioned off to raise money for the Jimmy Fund. Let's keep walking in the same direction, with the ballpark on your right. In 1999, the grassroots Save Fenway Park activists said their makeshift headquarters on card tables, right here behind the Green Monster. Diehard fans from all over came to hand out leaflets, sell bumper stickers, and advocate for Fenway to be saved. There were Red Sox fans, community activists, there was even someone from Detroit who had lost the fight to save his beloved Tiger Stadium and didn't want to see it happen again in Boston. Randy Davinsky joined Save Fenway in 1999 and became one of the movement's leaders. Here he is to tell you more. I've
1: been involved in a lot of different nonprofits, and this group was one of the most eclectic and basic American community groups that you could possibly imagine. There was people from all sorts of different political backgrounds, complete tapestry of everything that you might want. Libertarians, liberals, people in neighborhood concerns, baseball lovers, historic preservationists.
0: As diverse as the Save Fenway members were, they were all united in their love of this park and their belief that its demolition would also destroy the heart of baseball and the heart of the neighborhood. I remember walking down the street in those days. I didn't know Randy then, but I'm sure I must have seen him. And I had a safe Fenway bumper sticker on the back of my very first car, a mammoth 1973 Delta 88 convertible. You'd see them on cars all over town. They really spread awareness, and you can still spot a few of them on cars occasionally. Keep walking past the House of Blues on your left. A lot of great musicians have played in that club over the years, and I've seen a lot of great shows there myself. Keep walking toward the corner up ahead. Safe Fenway wasn't just fighting for a baseball park. It was a fight for this neighborhood. Just like we all stuck with the Sox during their 86-year losing streak, we were sticking with our old ballpark. But the Safe Fenway pitch wasn't well received by everyone. And I don't just mean the owners and the city politicians. You have to remember, we were deep into a losing streak. And after Bill Buckner's error helped cost us the 1986 World Series, fans were really hungry to get another chance. The owners used the losing streak to their advantage. They argued that the Red Sox could not win a World Series without a new stadium. It was like dangling a raw steak in front of a hungry dog. And some fans were actually eating it up. But in July of 1999, the All-Star Game was held at Fenway. I was there. And let me tell you, it was a game changer for fan sentiments in Boston. Maybe it was watching Red Sox icon Ted Williams throw out the first pitch as the rest of baseball's all-century team looked on in awe. Or seeing Boston pitching ace Pedro Martinez strike out five of the six batters he faced. But that night, fans fell in love with Fenway Park all over again, and their longtime love affair with the team was rekindled. At the corner here, turn right and cross the street toward the back of Fenway Park when it's safe. Is that a great view or what? And it's right here in the middle of this neighborhood. Now let's continue walking. With the mesh players fence to your right, continue ahead in the same direction. Dick Johnson, curator of the Sports Museum here in Boston, will tell you about that All-Star game.
2: The 99 All-Star game was one of the most poignant scenes ever in Boston. For here was Ted Williams making his final trip to Fenway Park leading a parade of all-time great players coming out of the doorway in center field. This was a field of dreams. I sat with my 9-year-old son and had to sort of hide the fact that, yeah, I was crying. Crying because the greatest hitter in baseball history, a true hero, a war hero, Boston's own Ted Williams, was returning to the scene of his glory. There he was in the bullpen cart, being driven by his old friend Al Forrester, grinning from ear to ear, waving his hat, soaking it all in. The man that not only was the last 400 hitter, but raised millions of dollars for the Jimmy Fund and fought in two wars. There was no one ever like him. There will never be anyone like him. Ted Williams, home again for one final time. And of course, All of the all-time players that had been introduced prior to his arrival came to him as though he was a magnetic force. Johnny Bench, Ernie Banks, Reggie Jackson, all of them flooding towards Ted Williams. The greatest. Number nine, the Splendid Splinter.
0: Keep following the sidewalk around the corner. The Safe Fenway activists use the goodwill from the All-Star game to their advantage. I'll tell you how in a moment. But first, I want to show you some very cool Red Sox history. You'll see some statues ahead on your right. We'll be stopping there. Stop in front of these three monuments. Now take a look at the first one with the four ballplayers. It's called simply Teammates. See the teammate on the far left? That's Ted Williams, the Red Sox legend who threw out that first pitch at that game-changing All-Star game. Here he is in his prime with his teammates and close friends from right to left, Dom DiMaggio, Johnny Pesky, and Bobby Doerr. But Williams wasn't just one of the greatest players on the team, he was also a part of the community. During the season, Williams lived at the Kenmore Square Hotel, and he walked to the ballpark. He was one of the biggest players in Red Sox history, but he behaved like he was just another Fenway Kenmore resident. You know, seeing him at that All Star game reminded people around here of our special relationship with the players. And that made a difference. All right. Facing the teammates, turn left, walk to the next statue, and stop in front of it. This is Hall of Famer number eight, Karly Ostremski, or Yaz, as we call him. Along with Williams, Yaz had one of the longest careers in Red Sox history. He played from 1961 until 1983, and you can imagine how much a part of this neighborhood he became over those 22 years. Facing this statue, turn left and continue walking to the last one. This is my personal favorite. It's Ted Williams again. Continue walking as I tell you about it. Notice how Ted is putting a cap on a child's head? That's not just any child. This is a kid battling cancer, like the kids we helped through the Jimmy Fund. When the Jimmy Fund started its association with the Red Sox in 1953, Williams was right there, doing whatever he could for the kids. He and many other players, then and now, are very supportive of our work at Dana-Farber. We even have Jimmy Fun donation boxes inside the ballpark, and a big Jimmy Fun logo on the green monster. Keep walking with the ballpark on your right. As you walk, look up and to your right, above the brick wall. You should see some red and blue banners hanging down, and some numbers underneath them. These are some more of the heroes of Red Sox history. Players like pitcher Cy Young. If his name sounds familiar it's because he was so great that the plaques given out every year to the best pitchers in baseball are named after him. Even during our 86 year drought we always had heroes to rally behind and we always had hope. And in 2000 with the future of Fenway in doubt we had hope about that too. We put some of that hope in a few of our politicians who stood up to the mayor's office and others to help save Fenway. At the time, Mike Ross was a 28-year-old rookie city councilman for the Kenmore Fenway District. And despite all the political momentum that the owner's plan had, he came out against it. Not just because he loved the ballpark, but also because he was protecting the neighborhood. That was a big step for a first-term councilman, and the Save Fenway activists and others took notice. But before I introduce you to Mike, let's stop up ahead so I can show you what that long drought really looked like. Stop here and look up at the side of the ballpark. See those plaques commemorating our World Series titles? Stand right between the circular sign that says 1918 and the blue flag that says 2004. That space between them might look small while you're standing here, but for Sox fans like me, it felt like an eternity. The frustrating thing is, the Red Sox weren't a bad team all those years. Far from it. We got to the playoffs, and even to the World Series, a bunch of times. But we seemed to have a knack for snatching defeat from the jaws of victory in heartbreaking fashion year after year. And this town wanted a World Series title more than anything. Let's start walking. Facing the plaques, turn left and head to the corner up ahead at the bottom of the huge green metal stairs on your right. Mike Ross wanted that World Series championship too. But he wanted it to happen in the real Fenway.
1: I've loved Fenway since I went to my first game when I was a kid. So as a fan, it was never really a question for me. Of course I wasn't in favor of tearing down Fenway. But it was also the fact that constituents wanted to keep the park. And I made a promise to them that I needed to make good on. Which wasn't easy as a freshman councilman. I didn't pull much weight. And I was going against the mayor, even though I had actually worked to get him elected. That didn't go unnoticed
0: cross here and continue ahead in the same direction keep walking in the same direction as Mike continues
1: the more vocal I got the more I found it was really hard to get other things I needed from the mayor's office a public works employee once told one of my staffers look I'm not really sure how to say this so I'll just come right out and say it we are under direct orders not to help Mike Ross's
0: office with anything anything But Mike didn't like what the owner's plan would do to this neighborhood. Imagine, if Harrington had his way, this whole stretch that we've been walking would actually be part of the new ballpark. Harrington's plan called for a massive expansion that would have gone all the way to Boylston Street, a block to your left. In order to do that, the owners got permission from the state to use eminent domain to take most of the land in between the current ballpark and Boylston and they were promised public money to help pay for all of it. Watch for cars on your right as you cross this driveway. None of that sat right with Mike. The people of his district needed more housing and better services, not less. The plan essentially pitted this neighborhood against the city and the state, and Mike took on the fight. Mike knew he needed to get more support on the city council to help him oppose the plan, and that meant showing them the real Fenway Kenmore like I'm showing you now. Here's Mike again to tell you about it. So I got this
1: trolley, like the kind they use for tours of the city, and I drove 10 other city council members around, and I showed them the area. A lot of the council had never really spent time in the neighborhood other than to go to the game. But I showed them the people who lived here, and the community gardens, and the local park a couple blocks away from where we are now. And I explained how all the potential for Boylston Street was going unrealized because no one wanted to invest if the new stadium was going to bulldoze it.
0: Mike's Goodwill Tour got some members of the council thinking differently about the impact of a new ballpark. And that opened the door for Save Fenway's next big move. In the summer of 2000, Save Fenway teamed up with a neighborhood group, the Fenway Community Development Corporation, to come up with a real plan that went beyond selling bumper stickers. The owners kept insisting that Fenway was too run down and unsafe to be saved. So the Save Fenway activists decided to prove them wrong. When you get to the corner, turn right and follow the curve of the street around the little park on your right. Then, walk to the next corner. The group's hired architect Philip Bess, who had written a book on how neighborhood baseball parks provide an intimate experience of the game for spectators while working with the community around them. They wanted best to prove that Fenway could not only be saved, it could win. Turn right at the corner and keep walking with the red brick building and the brown panel and glass building on your right. If you follow the line of the road with your eyes straight ahead, in the distance you'll see the Sicko sign once again. You can see how much of a beacon that sign is. Bess and the activists gathered architects, historical preservationists, and city planners from all over the country. People called them the Fenway SEP. They investigated the ballpark's condition, often sneaking in during games, looked at the streets and businesses around Fenway, and met with local residents and the few politicians on their side, like Mike Ross. Bess and the Fenway 7 worked around the clock to find ways to address all of the issues Harrington and the owners had insisted required demolition. Part of Fenway's charm is its quirks. The park is irregularly shaped with a shorter right field than left, Pesky's pole marks the right field foul line, which is the shortest outfield distance in Major League Baseball. And of course, left field has the green monster, which was originally built to keep people in the neighborhood from watching a game without paying. But the tall wall also turns doubles into what we like to call Fenway Singles. Now carefully cross this small alley and continue ahead. The Fenway 7 looked at all of these quirks and decided to incorporate them into the redesign. They also believed the owners had overlooked all kinds of spaces and possibilities within the ballpark. So what was their final plan? Remember the seating we saw on top of the green monster? Back in 2000, seating capacity was the ballpark's biggest issue. So the Fenway 7 proposed the terrace-style seating right on top of the monster. Unconventional? Sure. But now they almost always sell out. Okay, cross this small alley and continue toward the corner ahead. The plan also added seats on the rooftops that shade parts of left and right field, and it reconfigured the existing concession space behind the right field wall to improve it. That had been another major criticism of the aging park. Their plan fixed at least two-thirds of the problems that ownership had listed, and for a lot less than it would have cost to tear down Fenway and start from scratch. On August 12, 2000, Philip Bess, say Fenway, and the other activists held a press conference to present their plan and prove to the public that demolition wasn't the only solution. A lot of people who had been in favor of the new stadium started to take Randy Davinsky and Philip Best seriously. And the Save Enway movement gained momentum as the owner's plan started to lose political capital. As I said before, Harrington's plan required a lot of public money, money that politicians like Mayor Menino had been eager to commit. But now that the park could be saved, politicians found it difficult to justify the use of taxpayer dollars for a new ballpark, especially when, to Mike Ross's point, those dollars could be committed to real community needs. But the Safe Fenway movement hadn't hit a home run just yet. There was one more hurdle to saving the park. At the corner ahead, turn left and cross when it's safe. There's no light, so be extra careful. See that circular T sign up ahead? Keep the parking lot with the spinning white sign on your left and walk towards the train station. Up ahead, I want to show you two important numbers in Red Sox history. The T is the commuter rail to the suburbs. As you walk toward it, look at the big red numbers on metal podiums along the sidewalk. These are the retired numbers for the Red Sox. On your right, there's number 9 for Ted Williams and number 1 for 9-time All-Star Bobby Doerr. On your left, there's number 27 for catcher Carlton Fisk, And at the end, there's a special blue number, 42, for Jackie Robinson. Unlike all the others here, Robinson actually never played for the Red Sox. His number was retired by every Major League team to honor his role in breaking the color line as the Major's first African-American player in the 20th century keep walking and stop in front of the Blue 42. We've been talking about Boston's love affair with the Red Sox, but the team wasn't always perfect. In fact, it has had some dark moments. In 1945, a few months before Robinson was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers, he tried out at Fenway Park. But supposedly he didn't make the team because management didn't want to integrate the Red Sox. Robinson, of course, went on to become one of the all-time greats, while the Red Sox went through one of their worst losing streaks. Finally, in 1959, the Red Sox became the last major league team to field a black player, Pumpsie Green. That was two and a half years after Robinson's retirement. Regardless of management's reasoning back then, today's Red Sox team is about as diverse as any in the MLB. Facing number 42, turn left and make your way back the direction in which we came. On your right, you'll see number 45. Stop there. Number 45 honors a more recent Hall of Famer, who was also pivotal to saving Fenway Park. This is Pedro Martinez's number. Okay, stop here and take a look. Martinez was one of baseball's greatest pitchers, and coming to see him pitch at Fenway was an event. He may have been only 165 pounds, but he was pure power, and at that important All-Star game in 1999, he struck out five of the top hitters in baseball in just two innings. His performance rallied the city behind the team, especially the Dominican community. We started to see more Dominicans and people from all areas of the Caribbean coming to games, and more kids from those places saying they wanted to play ball. Okay, now turn left and continue walking back up the street to the corner where we came from. So what was that last hurdle to saving Fenway? Here's where the greed comes in. Turns out, in 1999, Harrington had a secret plan to sell the Red Sox, and he was really pushing for a new stadium with public investment to make the club more valuable. All that talk about ensuring the team's economic viability to win a World Series was really all about lining the owners' pockets. When it became clear that the plan had lost support, Harrington and the owners decided to take bids anyway, and all of the nine bidders except one were committed to tearing down the park. The city was on pins and needles all over again. At the corner, stop for a moment and look straight ahead to your left. Take it in for a second. This is what the Save Fenway Park people and politicians like Mike Ross had spent years fighting to protect. And it was on the chopping block all over again. But when the winning bid was announced, the city heaved a collective sigh of relief. The new owners group was the one bidder that had already committed to the Fenway 7's plan to preserve and renovate the park. Okay, let's get going. I want to show you the place where this ballpark meets the neighborhood. Facing Fenway, use the crosswalk in front of you and cross the street to the corner store. That's the building with the big green metal gate and the blue awning. Stop in front of it. I'll meet you there. When you get to the corner, stop and turn to your left. See the big blue banner with red letters stretched across the street? It tells you exactly where you are. Welcome to Yawkey Way. A few hours before every game, Yaki Way is closed off to anyone without a ticket. It becomes like an extension of the ballpark. Fans can get sausage sandwiches, hot peanuts, and more. And a lot of the vendors have been here for generations. Yaki Way is named after Red Sox owner Tom Yawkey. Now, we just heard about the team's resistance to integration when Yawkey was owner. And he was far from a perfect guy. But he's also remembered for his commitment to the club. Yawkey bought the failing team in 1933 right after a dreadful 111-loss season, still the worst in franchise history. And he heavily renovated Fenway and put money into building a winning team. He loved the Red Sox, and he was the sole owner for 44 seasons until his death in 1976. His wife's trust still owned the club in the late 90s, when the new ballpark's plans were put forward. All right, turn to your left. See the red and blue canopied windows? If it's game day, and you're lucky, you may also see a red and white peanut stand just in front of those windows, right in the middle of Yawkey Way. And if the peanut stand's there today, the guy selling the peanuts is Nicky Jacobs, a.k.a. Nicky Peanuts. Nicky's car here is probably a line. And if he's not here, look at your phone, and I'll show you a picture. His family has been one of the constants around Fenway Park since well before I started coming here as a kid. That's the thing about this place. All the generations of families who work here and worship here. Fenway Park is like one giant family. And that's why the corporations and politicians couldn't destroy it. It might sound cheesy, but this ballpark has heart. Literally, a beating heart. Can you hear it? I can. Of course, if it's game day, that might be the chanting of the crowds. So where was I when the curse of the Bambino was finally broken in 2004? On August 16, 2004, my daughter Rachel was born a few blocks from Fenway. I could see the lights of the ballpark from the window outside my wife's hospital room. The Red Sox beat the Blue Jays that night at Fenway and went on to win 16 of 17 games in the first few weeks of my baby's life. I called the winning streak the Rachel Effect, and I'm pretty sure the Rachel Effect got us into the playoffs that October. My daughter may not remember it, but she watched every inning when Boston made its great comeback against the Yankees and then swept the Cardinals in the World Series. You see, being a Red Sox fan is passed down through our families. All right, if Nikki's here and you want to get some of the peanuts, just pause. At five bucks, it's one of the deals around. When you're ready, press play. Okay, if Yockey Way is open today, there's one more place I want to show you. If it's not, you can stand off to the side here and listen. I'll show you some photos so you can still get a sense of it all. If the gate is open, turn to your right and start walking further down Yawkey Way with the park on your left. We're going to the Red Sox team store. It's the one with the blue and red awnings up there on the right. As we walk, I'll tell you more about what happened when the new owners came in. Back in 2002, the group with the winning bid for the Red Sox included former Baltimore Orioles and San Diego Padres president Larry Lucchino, And that was the saving grace for saving Fenway. Lucchino had built new ballparks for both teams, but it's the kind of ballparks he built that's important. Carefully cross the small street ahead. Okay, stop here under the second blue and red sign that says Red Sox Team Store. Lucchino has a passion for old school neighborhood ballparks. Baltimore's Camden Yards and San Diego's Pepco Park were meant to evoke places like Fenway. This is the official souvenir store of the Boston Red Sox. One of the arguments that the Save Fenway group made back in 2000 was that moving the park didn't just hurt the team and the fans, it hurt the working people around the ballpark. People like Nicky Peanuts and the family that owns this store, the D'Angelo family. Twin brothers Arthur and Henry came to Boston from Italy in 1939 and started working around Fenway Park as teenagers. They shined shoes, sold newspapers, and in 1947, they started selling Red Sox pennants. Eventually, in 1967, they had saved enough money to buy this store right here. They started building their American dream the same year as the Red Sox' impossible dream season, the first season the team made it to the World Series since 1946. Henry passed away in 1987, but his twin brother, Arthur, continues to work at the store. And he is a fixture at the ballpark. His oldest son, Bobby, has taken over most of the day-to-day operations alongside his brothers. But they still have to answer to dad. And old-time fans like me still call this place by the name it had when we were kids. Twin Souvenirs. Here's Bobby to tell you more. The thing about a place
1: like ours, it's generational. I mean, the greatest thing is my dad sits in his chair in the middle of the store He has a World Series ring from 2004 that he got from the team. And every single customer that comes by wants to take a picture with him in the ring. So when they come here and ask for that picture, it's like they did with their father and their grandfathers, and they're coming in with their kids and their grandkids. So Fenway Park is generational, and that's why people like to come here. It's tradition.
0: If the store is open and you want to grab a cap or a shirt, pause me and head inside through the first entrance on the right. Then walk through the first section and through the opening into the larger back part of the store. Just past that opening, look to the right on the high part of the wall. Those are some photos of the D'Angelo's and their history here on Yaki Way. Okay, pause me and head inside. When you're done, meet me back here and press play. Back outside? Okay, let's head to our last stop. With your back to the team store, look at the flags hanging from the ballpark just off to your left. Find the one that says 1916, and the one that says 1946. Let's head over to the seats right between those two flags. When the new owners took control, they stayed true to their word. They met with Save Fenway and the Fenway Seven. They met with Mike Ross and community members. They built a team that finally brought home a World Series trophy. And they kept Fenway, Fenway. Stop here and take a seat. These are actual seats from the ballpark. Yes, they are cramped. Yes, you may need to use some form of gymnastics to wedge yourself in or get yourself out. But these are the real deal, just like our ballpark. And that's why we love it. No place is more authentic or intimate to take in a baseball game than Fenway Park. While you're sitting here, take a look at the souvenir store on Yawkey Way. That entire side of the street would not be here right now if the owner's 1999 proposal had gone through. But there it stands, and here you sit. So what's next? Is Fenway Park finally safe from demolition? Well, here's the good news. With all the renovations and improvements that the new owners have made since 2002, it wouldn't be financially sound to move the club now. In fact, the owners have said Fenway is sustainable for the next several decades. And even better, the park itself can't be torn down anyway, because it has been designated a national landmark. So this is where I'm going to leave you. Sitting right here, outside the one and only Fenway Park. I hope you feel intimately connected to it now. It may not be the biggest or the newest, but it's the living beating heart of this team and this neighborhood. Thanks for walking with me today. I hope I took you out to the ballgame. Take care.